this week, I read an interesting post from a tech worker who works uh, in particular in internet privacy, and he said this, I'm back from a week at my mom's house, and now I'm getting ads for her toothpaste brand. We never talked about this brand or Googled it or anything like that. As a privacy tech worker, let me explain what is happening here. First of all, your social media apps are not listening to you. Uh, that is a conspiracy theory that's been debunked many, many times. Your apps are not doing that, but frankly, they don't need to. Your apps collect a ton of data from your phone, your unique device ID, your location, your demographics. Data aggregators pay to pull in that data from everywhere. And when I use a discount card at a grocery store, every purchase, that's a data set for sale. They can match my Harris Teeter purchases to my Twitter account because I gave both those companies my email address and phone number, and I agreed to all that data sharing when I accepted those terms of service and privacy policy. But here's where it gets truly nuts, he says. If my phone is regularly in the same GPS location as another phone, they take note of that and start reconstructing the web of people I'm in regular contact with. Advertisers can cross-reference my interests and my browsing and purchasing history with those around me. So it starts showing me ads based on the people around me on the chance I may start a conversation about, I don't know, toothpaste. It's not listening, it's just comparing aggregated metadata. They know my mom's toothpaste. They know I was at my mom's. They know my Twitter. Now I get Twitter ads for my mom's toothpaste. Your data isn't just about you, he says. It's about how it can be used to affect every person you know and even people you don't. To shape behavior unconsciously, your data reshapes the Internet. Now, please, during the sermon service, do not start deleting your apps. Please wait till after service to do that. But for those of you who do happen to use uh, Apple products, their latest updates let you block app tracking, and Facebook is really, really mad about it. They're begging you to just press accept and go back to business as usual, he says. So, it's kind of hard to believe sometimes, right, that like this is the world we've made. How did we go from just wanting a mobile phone, like that big mobile phone that Zach Morris used to carry and save by the bell, right? Some of you will remember that. How did we go from that to having apps chasing us all over Kingdom Come to sell us things that we don't want or need, or didn't want and didn't need, but now we do? How do we end up shaping social behavior, the internet, the world in ways we never intended? Why can't we seem to avoid making problems out of our solutions? Is that just the nature of progress? Or is it simply the state of our hearts? Is it the nature of being human and of making the world in many ways based on what we understand and we see and what we think we need and what we're asking for? We're all shaped within, as individuals, by the world in motion around us. And yet we, in turn, continue to shape that world. There are reciprocal and relative effects. The world gets in our hearts, but it is our hearts. No one person is to blame, and every single one is. And so it goes. And you can see this, actually, at work in our gospel reading today. It's not about technology, but you can see it in the hearts of James and John in their desires and in the world in which those desires are formed with all of its ideals, 
which we'll talk about. They say to Jesus in this strikingly direct way, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And that might sound really strange, except that, you know, earlier that day, Jesus had, he had made a big promise, right? He had said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, these things, right? They're feeling emboldened. They're saying, hey, that's us. And it also makes some sense if you've just heard Jesus say, we're going to Jerusalem and there the son of man will suffer, but will rise. Going to the holy city, He's going to reveal himself in some sense. It's heavy, it's cryptic. Verse 32, which is not in our reading today, says, They were following behind him with a mix of amazement and fear. Their imaginations are stoked. And so then comes this request. The sons of Zebedee respond, the sons of thunder. And it seems right to them to simply stake their claim on the specific way in which this promise of blessing might be fulfilled for them and how they might overcome any fear or uncertainty about what Jesus is talking about, what's to come. Jesus asks, well, what do you want me to do for you? Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They're aiming big. Jesus replies, you do not know what you're asking. That's it, isn't it? Do we ever really, fully, from our vantage points, in the world and the world in us, do we really know what we're asking for? What we find out in a few verses is that they are asking for assurances of power. They don't just desire assurances that they will be with Jesus in his kingdom. What do they want? They are gunning for the two highest positions available in the king's court. They want to be advisors with the the security and the control and the glory that come from delegated positional power. That's what we want, nothing less. They're jockeying for position, and we know this because verse 41 introduces how the other ten disciples are feeling, right? They're indignant. They're like, hey, wait a minute. They know what's up. And while the others are still amazed and afraid, James and John jump on it. And they jump on it with selective hearing and a muddled understanding, seemingly breezing past all that stuff Jesus said about being handed over to the authorities, being mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. Because let's be honest, it's not hard to to only hear the parts we want to hear, is it? What James and John assume, followed by the other disciples, is that as Jesus rises to power, the usual hierarchy is going to be erected, and they ought to scramble to be at the top of it. Jesus presses them, but are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. But are they, though? What do they understand? What do they know? Do they know what this cup symbolizing his fate actually means, is going to mean? They don't bother to ask. They're confident enough in their own understanding, it would seem. On their own terms, they're good to go, but Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. That's not the point, he's saying. 
Because Jesus knows how it's going to play out. What he can promise them is that if they follow him, they will suffer. James is one of the first apostles to be martyred. He'll be beheaded probably within a decade of the church by Herod. And we find this out in Acts 12. John is going to live to be an old man into the 90s. But he'll be exiled to the island of Patmos and he'll spend most of his life, at least to some degree, being persecuted. They will indeed participate in his suffering for his name. But this isn't what they had in mind in Mark 10. We're finding out. They have position and power in mind. And the cross at this moment is beyond their imagination. So Jesus is at pains to draw a stark contrast between how the world views leadership, how they view leadership, and how it must work for the kingdom, how it must work for them who are bringing the kingdom in his name. He's already attempted to make the point in chapter 9. He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last and he must be servant of all. It didn't seem to stick. But now the rubber's meeting the road, isn't it? Now they're in a situation some actual jockeying. They've got, they've got some intense intergroup dynamics. They're working it out. There's some offense. Their hearts are showing, and it's ugly. And it wouldn't have been so radical for Jesus or for any Jewish teacher of that time to critique the authoritarian and even the tyrannical system of the Greco-Roman world or that worldview. Jewish teachers often used Gentile practices as negative examples. But I'll tell you this, it was radical for Jesus to define greatness in terms of servanthood. It was radical for anyone. Despite Jewish rules requiring that slaves or servants would be well treated, Jewish free persons, just like their Gentile counterparts, considered slaves socially inferior. You don't want to be them. And in a society that's fixated on what brought either honor or shame to one's family or to one's or, or, or people or to one's status, there's just no honor in doing the dirty work. There's no honor in washing feet and setting the table, certainly not in giving the shirt off your back to that guy. By calling himself a servant and by defining his mission as giving his own life as a ransom for the many, Jesus identifies himself with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which we read today. The servant setting even slaves free, how? By becoming a slave himself. Dignifying the lowly by going low. Suffering with and for those who suffer. The compassionate God bearing our grief. Numbered with the sinners and the sorrowful and buried with the wicked. This one sent to suffer would become Israel for Israel. Fulfilling her mission. Bringing light to the Gentiles who otherwise don't have a prayer. At least until Jesus came, the Jews did not associate the Messiah with this suffering servant in Isaiah 53. So Jesus is narrowing their scope and their understanding. He's redefining their expectations. Only he knows what's going to work for the world. But it's not being discerned in the hearts and in the habits of the world as it is. It's not detectable even in God's own people. It's not even in those closest to Jesus who've been with him for years. It must come from without, from Him. An unusual light breaking into the usual darkness. And it's going to come the hard way. That darkness so common to us and so capable of shaping the world through us, it turns out to be a profound sense of scarcity. A sense that we are not enough 
and that there isn't enough, though we rarely think or speak of our motivations that way. Ambition and opportunism, they even have a way of revealing the scarcity that lies deep in the human heart. It works like this. If I don't get the place at or near the top, someone else will. And what will that mean for me if they do? Where will I fit and what will I get? How will it compare what I've gotten? And so the other ten disciples are feeling that as soon as you get James and John trying to find the place, right? And then the question is, what's being withheld from me that I deserve? And what if I don't get it? And who will have it if I don't get it? How can I have, get some leverage or how can I keep from losing the leverage I have? These are the questions of scarcity. These are the things that fill our world when we feel something other than what the gospel is telling us. A personal aside, but related, uh, my personality type and probably a good mixture of nurture in my own life means that I experience life in terms of the control I have or I don't. It's not that I need to control others, but I don't want to be controlled by others. Can I just be real with you for a minute? I don't glow in the dark, far from it. I don't want to be controlled by others ever. At my best, I want to help everyone I can, and I want to solve all the problems I can all the time for everyone at my best. But at my worst, I can feel a certain kind of scarcity in my bones. What if I have to do what I don't want to do? What if there's no room for what I want? What if the plan is bad and I have to go along with it? What if there's no plan at all? There's fear. There's pride. There's mistrust and so on. And at my worst, people can cease to be people. They just become problems. They're in the way of what I want. So I wonder if we can see ourselves in these disciples trying to secure their place in the world as they understand it. There's a hierarchy. Why do they want what they want? Why do we want what we want? Well, power is safety. People become positions, and positions are limited. Ambition is a great cover for scarcity. Pride is a great cover for insecurity. Our competition and our comparison, our fear of losing out or missing out, they flow out of hearts and into lives. They make the world. They flow into the world. It comes from the lie that we're not enough in ourselves, which is actually a deeper lie that says we're actually supposed to be enough in ourselves. We're not that we're basically on our own trying to find our place in the universe, in the job market, in our social circles, in these complicated bodies we have, or just in the office politics, and not in who we are in our relationship to God. It's the problem of Eden, really, isn't it? That lie finds its ultimate root in the distance our sin creates, whether we call it that or not. On the one hand, sin sin tells us that we don't need God. And on the other hand, it tells us that we can't have God. It denies that despite how shallow and narrow we are, God loves us at unfathomable depth and breadth. And yes, we can have God. And yes, we do need God. And that difference between us and Him is not just an insuperable gap between us. Not to God. How does God see that? It's a need. 
And it calls for a bridge. It calls for a connection that we really need to be really human again. And that's the bridge that God built when Christ the Word became flesh and made His home among us, became weak for the weak. When He came to serve us as our great high priest. So we get this image from the author of Hebrews. It's of It's one of Jesus taking this role of the high priest who did what? He served all of Israel. Jesus is himself sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory. But what's he doing? In his power, he is serving us in the ministry of intercession, still being for us what we cannot be for ourselves. This great high priest, like Isaiah's servant, is able to sympathize with our weakness, making it possible for anyone to draw near to the place that he has made for us around the throne of God. Not to sit at his right and his left hand, but to what? To find the mercy and grace that we really need. To find our place, not seeking power, but receiving ourselves again in God. Because He served us and continues to serve us, Jesus affords us confidence to come and to participate in His rule and His reign. It's not confidence in our own platform or our own position or our own achievements. It's not in our own knowledge which puffs us up. It's definitely not in our own progress because let's be honest, we ain't there yet. And that can obscure the race that lies ahead of us. It's confidence in the merciful love of God, the motivating, merciful love of God. As the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts are laid bare by the otherwise daunting truth about Him and about us, He's not only our judge, but He's our advocate. He's not only the one who will bring justice, but He is the one who brings help. That's our confident and secure place with Him, and it's already available to us all jockeying aside. It's a place of abundance that scatters the darkness of scarcity out of our hearts. The darkness that simply doesn't know what we're really asking for when we ask. The gospel of Jesus offers us a way to think about influence, power that empowers and blesses the world, not a way rooted in self-advancement or scarcity. Certainly, the gospel gives us a vision of a just society that we labor for, that's rooted in a transcendent reality. gives us truth about the dignity of everyone, even the sinner. But we have to wonder how it is that the church, knowing what we know and have known, we can continually get caught up in these big movements of power and even coercion, that our authority structures can become toxic in these meta-narratives, these big stories that play by the rules of the world and not of the kingdom. I think in our history we've thought if we don't grab the levers of power, then we and the world will be thrust into utter chaos. That the gates of hell really will prevail, despite Jesus' own promise to build His church and to kick in those gates at every turn. The greater threat to the world I believe, is not that certain people will hold the levers of power or occupy the seats of honor, but that we, the disciples of the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant, will believe that's what matters the most. And we'll trade our ministry of blessing for blaming. We'll trade our message of abundance for scarcity. We'll cease to bless those who curse us as He taught us. We'll cease to pray for our enemies, and we'll find ourselves only concerned 
with berating them. When our true calling gets obscured by the desire for power, we've grabbed the levers and the gospel itself has been obscured for the world to whom we are witnessing. And we're the only ones who can proclaim the truth in the way we live with power, with what we have, with what we want. We're the only ones who have this true witness of safety in God. Of mercy, of grace in our time of need of the transforming work of a peace that passes understanding, which is a power that overflows and overthrows the true enemies of the good. Do you believe that? Why haven't our power plays been good for us and for the world? Jesus told us they wouldn't be. He told us the way to live. These are simply not how the kingdom has come and is coming. They are rooted in sin and scarcity and in hearts feeling naked and shamed and clamoring and jockeying and insecure, and in the fear beneath the pride that makes it near impossible for us to discern what we're really asking for, what we're praying for. I imagine this, I believe this, I hope this, that as we listen to Jesus all the more, to every word, not just what we want to hear, we will know more clearly what we are asking from Him and should be asking from Him. I imagine then, when we ask the Lord to do whatever we want Him to do for us, our desires will be closer to His. I imagine we will begin to align our hearts with the very thing He came to do. And guess what? It's the reason you're here. To do and carry forward the very same works that he came to do for the glory of God and for the life of the world itself. This is who we are. This is what we have. This is the way we're meant to stand in the world as a witness to what's better. His way is better. Do you believe that? Lord, help us. Help us to believe it. We feel the chaos, we feel the unmaking of the world as it is. We feel honestly that all of us can find ourselves asking all of these questions about what we lack, what we need and think we need. We find ourselves playing by the rules of the world and we forget, Lord, that you are the Alpha and Omega. You know the beginning from the end and you who began a good work in us, in your church, will be faithful to complete it. And we ask that you help us to be faithful as you do. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.